You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. This is phase three, I guess, okay, or something like that. We're going to have a good time sharing together this morning in God's Word. I was uh, excited this week to see all of the guys come together, and, and a few of the women uh, brought us some cokes on Monday night. See all of us come together on Monday night. It was really fun to see all those walls start going up. I thought one of the more uh, humorous things about the evening, though, was to see how the group divided itself. There was half the group that knew what they were doing, had worked in construction before, or at least acted like they did anyway. And then there was half of the group that really didn't know what the heck they were doing, but they were willing to help anyway. And uh, you can guess what group I fell into. Uh, believe it or not, these hands have seen work in my lifetime, but never in the construction arena. But you know, I was there, I wanted to help, and I was glad to do that. And so I wound up with a pretty important job, along with Gary Christian and, and uh, Gary Adkison and Bob Poole, and who else was that? Jack Young. Uh, we got to move pallet loads of sheetrock from place to place. You know, it's kind of like, well, we need to give y'all something to do, so here, go move this, you know. And uh, it wasn't really quite that bad. We had to get the sheetrock moved out of, out of the way so that the guys who knew what they were doing, like Cleaver and Braswell, well, maybe Cleaver, uh, no, Cleaver and Braswell could go pop lines and get the walls in place, you know. And uh, it was kind of fun seeing that, that go together. But, you know, I really didn't mind doing that because I was there. And the one thing I wanted to be was useful. I didn't want to just stand around doing nothing. I wanted to at least be useful. I think that's a desire of human nature is to want to make ourselves useful. Now, there's nothing more, uh, I think, discouraging or anything that lowers our self-esteem any more than just to feel like you're just a knot on a log. You know, like you make no positive contribution to life whatsoever and that you're just kind of there and nobody thinks that you matter and you really kind of think that about yourself. I think that God has made us in such a way that we want to be responsible creatures. And when we do something that makes us feel useful, we really feel good about ourselves. And this morning, we're going to look at what the Apostle Peter said about making ourselves useful from his second letter. If you turn with me to the second letter of Peter, 2 Peter, and we're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 together. 2 Peter's real near the end of the New Testament, kind of hard to find. If your pages are too worn, you really have a hard time finding it there. But we're going to look at 2 Peter together. And Peter, in these verses, really addresses this issue of making ourselves useful. How do we really become useful, not just to in the world, but how do we become useful in God's eyes? I think it's very important that we as Christians feel that way. I talk to so many Christians that say, well, you know, I'd do something if I could, you know, if I just knew how. You know, I just don't feel like I'm any value at all to God's kingdom. I, you know, I can't do anything in the church. And Peter said, that's not really true. There is a way that you can be useful. So let's read together 2 Peter 1. Verses 1 through 11. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence or virtue supply knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, here's the key, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Peter writes these words here at the end of his life. We hear in this letter that Peter was aware of the fact that he was about to go home to be with the Lord. And not too long after this, he did that very thing. And Peter gives us in some ways a last will and testament. He tells us what he wants us to be about. All the years of experience that he had as a Christian, he tells us what he believes to be very important. And I believe Peter would say to us today that it is very important that we as Christians come to understand how to become useful and how to become fruitful in the work of the kingdom. This is so unlike modern-day Christianity. Modern-day Christianity has been characterized by some, by one person, as an initial spasm followed by chronic inertia. And you know, that is true, isn't it? So much of the time we see people start up strong in their Christian life, but then we see a chronic inertia, a, a doing nothing, a save to sit in the pew and do no more, setting in. To a lot of people, Christianity is just a checklist. They have a checklist mentality about Christianity. I read a checklist like that this week. See if it sounds familiar. You don't have to raise your hand when I'm through, but see if this sounds familiar. Here's the checklist. Dressed up and drove to church. Check. Walk three blocks in the rain. That's for the real faith ones. They must not have been Baptist. Check. Got a seat and sat quietly. Check. Sang each verse. Smiled appropriately. Check. Gave $5. Listened to the sermon. Check. Closed my Bible. Prayed. Looked pious. Check. Shook hands. Walked out. Quickly forgot. Check. Isn't that the way a lot of people's Christianity really is? It's just a checklist kind of Christianity. But this isn't the kind of Christianity that Peter challenges us to here in these verses. No, in these verses, Peter challenges us to a Christianity that makes itself visible in everyday life. It's a Christianity that people can really see in your life. But so many people don't live this kind of Christianity, not only because they don't want to do it, but also because they don't know how to live this kind of Christianity. And Peter tells us how in these verses not only challenges us to live this kind of Christianity, but he tells us how to live this kind of Christianity. And this is what he says that I want us to think together about this morning. God calls us to usefulness in our Christian lives by applying his promises. We are called to usefulness in our Christian lives by applying the promises of God. Now, that sounds very simple, 
I wanted to sing standing on the promises this morning. And I wanted to sing his word will stand. And isn't that true? God's word not only has stood and does stand, but God's word will stand. I want us to sing that this morning so we could think together about how we can become useful in the Christian life by applying the promises of God in our walk with the Lord. So let's look together and see what Paul says about, about what Peter says about making ourselves useful in the Christian life. He shares with us first the basis for this usefulness. And what he says about the basis for usefulness, the first aspect of that that he points to is that we must be a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, it only makes sense that we would have to be a believer to be useful to God in any way. But this is what he says. He says he is writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. He is talking to believers, believers that he is convinced have really believed in Jesus Christ. It only makes sense that if you're going to be useful to God in his kingdom, that you will believe in Jesus Christ. Because until you receive God's new nature living within you, you will never be able to produce fruit or a good work that is going to be useful to God in any way. Just as an apple tree produces only apples, in the same way, your nature is going to produce the kind of fruit that is consistent with your nature. If you don't know the Lord personally, if you're apart from Jesus Christ, the kind of fruit that is going to come from your life is going to be fruit that is consistent with that. It may look good, but if your nature is one of sin and of the flesh, then only fleshly fruit, only sinful fruit will come forth, no matter how good it looks. But if your nature is God's nature living within you because you believed in Jesus Christ, then that nature, that, that, those fruits that come out from that nature will be fruits that glorify the Lord. They will be fruits that will be useful to God in His kingdom. And so what does this say to us? This says that if we look at our lives and we see that we're not bearing any fruit at all, if we're not being useful to God in His kingdom, or if we see that we're bearing the wrong kind of fruit, then we have to ask ourselves, have we really ever given our life to Jesus Christ at all? Have we really believed in Jesus Christ? It is the most important question that you will ever answer. So we must be a believer if we're going to be useful. But another aspect of the basis for usefulness that Peter points to here is that we must not only be a believer, but we must know the Lord. The word he uses, he uses twice, once in verse 2 and once in verse 3, and other places in these verses that we read. But he says in verse 2 that grace and peace will be multiplied to us in the knowledge of God. And then he says in verse 3 that we have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us. This word he talks about here is the word not just for knowledge in general, knowledge of facts, but it's the word that means to have a, an experiential knowledge of someone. It is an intensified form in the original language, which means to know someone or something really well. And this is saying to us this, that if we're going to be useful in the kingdom, we must not only believe in Jesus, we have to know Jesus really well. We have to listen to Jesus talk to us through his word. We have to talk to, to Jesus, talk to the Father in prayer. We need to meditate upon his word, and we need to share with him who we are. We need to share with him what we are. Everything about us, we need to come into an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this is the missing ingredient, I believe, in so many Christians' lives is that we know a lot about Jesus, but we don't know Jesus personally. It's kind of like, if you ask me if I knew George Bush, I would say, well, yeah, I know a lot about George Bush, 
you know, I know that George Bush, being being in the newspapers all the time, being on the evening news, you know, I know that George Bush likes a vacation in a place I never heard of before he became president, which is Kenny Buckport, Maine. Okay? We know that. Don't, okay, you know where that is. Uh, okay, great. All right. Uh, we don't need a testimony about it, okay? But, uh, you know, Kenny Buckport, Maine. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, he, all right. But, uh, Kenny, anyway. But, uh, you know, I know George Bush plays golf probably a little better than I do. I know George Bush fishes, I'm sure, a whole lot better than I do. He sails. You know, we know a lot about George Bush, don't we? But do I know George Bush? No, I don't know George Bush. He certainly wouldn't let me in if I went by his house either, you know? I don't know George Bush. And that's the way we are about Jesus Christ so much of the time. We know a lot about Jesus Christ. You know, I talk to people about their relationship with Jesus Christ. They believe that Jesus died for their sins. They believe that Jesus was even raised from the dead, but they don't know Jesus Christ. They don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I believe this is what separates true Christianity from religion. True Christianity is having a personal, intimate knowledge, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion is a set of rules about how to live the Christian life, how to be pleasing to God. But true Christianity is having a personal knowledge, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Is that the kind of relationship that you have with Jesus Christ today? I hope that it is. So we must be a believer, and we must also know the Lord personally. But then he says that we must recognize the gifts that he has given to us. There are some tremendous gifts that are, that are expressed to us in these verses that we read. It says in verse 3 that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. He, by his divine power, has granted to us everything. I think so much of the time as Christians, we sit there and we say, yeah, I believe that's true, but I just don't believe it applies to me. But he says anyone who calls himself a believer in Jesus Christ has been granted everything pertaining to life and godly living in Jesus Christ. You know, Paul said in Ephesians 1, that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing. We are lacking in nothing. And Jesus said that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, that you will go and that you will bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It is really true, folks, that we have received everything by God's divine power that we need for life and for living the Christian life. And so what is it that we do wrong? If that is the basis for our usefulness, then what do we do wrong? I believe what we do wrong is that we don't recognize that we have received those gifts. We continue to use the wrong tools. We continue to use our own resources, our own strength to try to live the Christian life. Or if a person is not a believer in Jesus Christ, they continue to try to honor God with a life that could never be pleasing to God. We use the wrong tools. You know, as we were up there this week working on the second floor, we had a choice. We could use the old-fashioned hammer. We could use the old-fashioned hacksaw. You know, we could use one of those power tools. You know, we could take that screwdriver and try to screw those things into the sheet metal, or we could take that screw gun, and we could drive that thing in there with that power tool. Certainly, it made a lot more sense to use the power tool, but I'm afraid that in the Christian life, what we do is we let the power tools lie on the ground, and we pick up the old-fashioned hand tools. We're going to do it our way in our own strength, 
And just like we would have done on Monday night if we had just used those wrong tools, we get nowhere in our Christian life, and we wonder why that happens. So what are the power tools that God talks about in this passage? I think it's very clear. He talks about the power tools as being the promises of God. I want to spend a little time here because I think we don't realize how to live the Christian life. I think we're told to live the Christian life, but we never quite understand how we live the Christian life. And Peter says it's through these great, he calls them precious and magnificent promises. He says two things about these promises. He says that they're great, and I think that refers to the scope of the promise and in what they can accomplish, and he calls them magnificent. And I think the word there means valuable. I think I like the way it's translated when it says precious promises. It means they have great value. And if you have gone through your Christian life and you've discovered a promise of God and you've begun to live by that promise, doesn't it become precious to you? Doesn't it become very valuable to you? And that's why Peter, I think, called these magnificent and precious promises because in his life, these promises have become very precious in his life. He knew this by personal experience. And you can sit there and think, well, I'm sure that works for you, but until you experience it, you don't know what a neat thing it is to live by the promises of God. One of these promises that Peter shares with us is right here in this very verse. It's an important promise for us to realize. It says that in verse 4, that in order, uh, in order that by these promises you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Do you believe that's true? You know what this verse says? This verse says not that you might escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. This verse says that you have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust because you have become a partaker of God's divine nature. Now, that is a promise. That's a declaration of God's word that you can live by. How many Christians do you know, maybe you're one of them, who is still trapped in bondage to sin? How many Christians do you know that still live as if they came to know the Lord, but nothing ever happened to give them victory over sin? You know what this verse says? This verse says that we have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. It means that we are no longer held in bondage under our evil desires. Romans 6.11 says, therefore, on the basis of that, to reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God. If, if you really believe that you've escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, then you can say with Paul, I reckon myself to be dead to sin. I say, sin, you don't have any power over anymore. I do not have to follow you. Now, the Bible tells us also that we're going to do that, but we have the ability, the opportunity to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin because of the promise of God's word that we have escaped the corruptions in the world through lust. Then Romans 6, 13 says, Therefore, if you reckon yourself to be dead to sin, then go on and present your members, your body, as an instrument of righteousness unto God. Now, what do so many Christians do? So much of the time, what we do is we say, I can't be useful to God. You know, I'm still trapped by this particular sin that I've got. I can't be useful to God. And so you just go on like nothing's ever happened in your life at all. What does God say? God says you've escaped that corruption. Therefore, reckon yourself to be dead to sin, but alive unto God. Therefore, present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead and begin to serve him. You see how those promises work? You believe God's word then you act on God's word, and then what does God do? By his divine nature, he gives you the power to carry out his word. Let's look at some other promises. What about Matthew 6, 33? 
Matthew 6.33 says this, to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and here's the promise, and then all these things will be added unto you. I picked this because I think it applies to us in a, in a great way. We have so much anxiety about the future, about what we're going to eat, about what we're going to drink, about what we're going to wear. And Jesus' disciples had that same anxiety. And Jesus said, quit having that anxiety, quit being anxious, but instead seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, my right way of living, in other words. And when you do, then what? I'm going to add all these things to you. You know, Solomon wasn't even arrayed in the glory of the lilies of the field, and I'm the one who gave those lilies of the field their beautiful flowers. And so he says, if you'll trust that promise, that if you seek first my kingdom, then I'm going to add those things to you. Now, suddenly, what have you done? A couple of things have happened. The first thing that's happened is this, is that you have suddenly become useful to God and his kingdom, haven't you? When you seek first God and his kingdom, because you trust him, then suddenly you become useful in God's kingdom. And the second thing it's done is this, is that God's divine power has suddenly kicked in to your life. Until you begin to take God at his word and believe his promise, God's divine power was like that power tool sitting over there on the concrete. You didn't pick it up and use it. It was there to use, but you didn't pick it up and use it. And in the same way, God says, actualize those promises and get my power into your life. What about the promise of John 3, 16? The most basic promise that there is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you are an unbeliever and you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that says this. That says if you believe in him for your salvation, that suddenly you will have eternal life. And that is a great promise. And when that promise comes along, what happens in your life? Suddenly you become useful to God in his kingdom. But before you believe him and take him at his word, you're of no use, no benefit to God whatsoever. What about 2 Chronicles 7:14? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, here's the promise, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Until we humble ourselves and pray and see God's face and turn from our wicked ways, we're not going to be of any use to God at all. But you know, until, when we actually do that, then God's promise kicks in that suddenly God heals our land. He forgives our sin. And what happens to us? We become useful to God again. God's resources begin to kick into our lives. And one last one, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. And these are throughout the pages of the Word of God, folks. Every page has got a promise of God on it. It's got a declaration of God's truth. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. He who sows sparingly will reap also sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap also bountifully. So let every man give as he's purposed in his own heart based on that promise. This is talking about in the financial area. If you sow sparingly in the area of finances, if you just give God the five bucks, then you're going to get five bucks back. You give God a thousand bucks based on whatever your percentage is. You give God back the big gift, then you're going to get the big gift back. But this is not just talking about finances. I'd love to say that's all he's talking about. But he's talking about investing your time. He's talking about investing your energy. Whatever you have, whoever you are, that if you will take that promise of God's word, that if you sow abundantly, what's going to happen to you? You're going to reap abundantly. You take God's promise to be true. You act on that promise. And then God makes you useful in his kingdom. And God blesses you in return. And isn't that the way God is? Do you believe God's word today? God's word is true. 
And when you live your life based upon God's Word, then God's Word is going to make you a useful Christian. So the basis for usefulness is that we be a believer, first of all, in Jesus Christ. That's the first step. But we must know the Lord personally, and then we must recognize His gifts, His promises that have been given to us that we might actually become sharers and partakers in God's divine nature. And then we need to see the building blocks for usefulness. Paul, uh, Peter talks a lot about this in these verses, the building blocks for God's usefulness. The first thing that he says is that we must have faith. He says this in verse 5. He says, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. It's vitally important that we realize that faith is the most important element of being useful to God. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is both the doorway into the Christian life, the doorway to usefulness, and it's the road along which it travels. Hebrews eleven six says, He that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And when you come to God with that kind of faith, then God will be able to use you. But it is only the foundation it is only the first of the building blocks for our usefulness. Peter says that in our, more, in our faith, we are to supply moral excellence. And before we talk about that word for just a couple of minutes, I want us to look at the approach that he says to take. Peter says that we are to supply moral excellence in our faith. That word supply looks like kind of a uh, uh, thin, boring word. doesn't have, look like it has a lot of meat or richness to it. But it is a very, very rich word picture in the original language. One who would supply something would be the one who, back in, in those days in the in ancient Greece, would be the patron or the contributor to the theater. In that day and age, the theater was all the entertainment that they had. They had a few athletic games that came a little bit later on, but in those early days, they had plays. The state would contribute money to it. The people in the production would contribute money to it. But there would be people on the outside who had a lot of money that would contribute money to this play, too, so they could have the right props so that they could have the neat costumes that really make their play come to life. And there was a lot of competition that developed between these wealthy benefactors to be the one that would give the most money to the play to make that the greatest production that they had seen to that point. And the word that came to be used for one who would give in that generous way would be the word supply. And what he's saying here is, is not just to add, which some of your translations say, don't just add to your faith moral excellence. He's saying generously supply in your faith, moral excellence. What he's saying is, is don't just barely get to that point, but go well beyond that point is what he's trying to say to us. And he says to do it, just to make sure we don't misunderstand it, he says to do it with all diligence. That word means enthusiasm. Do it enthusiastically. When's the last time you have characterized yourself as being enthusiastic about your Christian life, about working on your character qualities? It's vitally important that we be enthusiastic in our Christian life. The great writer Emerson said that nothing great was ever achieved without enthusiasm. And I believe that to be true. There's nothing more disturbing than to walk into Sunday school or church on a Sunday morning and see a bunch of deadheads. Wouldn't you agree with that? But there's nothing more exciting than to walk into church and see people abuzz about what God... That's exciting when you see other people doing that. And that's what challenges you to want to go on and do it. But it's a hard job. Kind of like what Tom Landry, when he was asked, when he was the head coach of the Cowboys, he was asked, you know, what is your job really like? And he said this, well, he says, I have a job to do that is not very complicated, but it is often difficult to get a group of men to do what they don't want to do 
so they can achieve the one thing they have wanted all their lives. And isn't that what a head coach in football does? Makes them do the thing they don't want to do so they can get the very thing they've wanted all their life. Well, you know, I believe that's the way it is with us as Christians. We want to be pleasing to God. We want to be useful, but it's hard to do it, isn't it? In many ways, it's hard to live the Christian life. And so it's vitally important that our attitude when we approach that Christian life be one of enthusiasm. The story is told about the great Houdini, the escape artist Houdini, who lived around the turn of the century. In 1904, he was challenged to an escape by the London Daily Illustrated Mirror. I never heard of that paper, but it's a true story. He was challenged to an escape, and they made some special handcuffs for him to get out of. They were these huge handcuffs that had six locks on each one and nine tumblers. That's, that's quite a bit, isn't it, Bob? Okay, Bob's locksmith, so he knows about that. Okay, these, I mean, it was like one of the most incredible escape attempts that was ever going to be taken, ever be done by anybody. But he says, I'll agree to do it because Houdini really thrived on this kind of thing. And so on that day, March the 10th, 1904, precisely 3.15 in the afternoon, about 4,000 people gathered around to watch Houdini as he got into an empty cabinet about waist high, and he had put those handcuffs on, he disappeared down in there. For about 20 minutes, he worked to get free, and he stood up, and the crowd applauded. They were excited that he was free, but, but he wasn't. He said it was too dark down there, and he needed some more light. So they quickly went and got some lights. They put those lights down in the cabinet so he could see what he was doing. So he disappeared back down there in the cabinet again. And for about 15 more minutes, he worked hard to get free. And he popped up again, and the crowd again applauded, but he still wasn't free. He said he just needed to flex his knees. So he got back down in there again. For another 20 slow, agonizing minutes, Houdini worked on his escape attempt again. And then he stood up, but the crowd knew better this time. They waited to applaud. And he wasn't free yet. He said, I mean, it's too hot in here because of these bright lights. So he twisted his hands around. He got a knife out of his pocket. He opened it up with his teeth and he slashed his coat to ribbons and he ripped it off piece by piece. And the crowd just applauded because of this great effort that he was going to, to to get free from these handcuffs. And one last time, he went back down into the cabinet and he got free. And about 10 minutes later, he stood up and he held up the handcuffs. He was free at last. And they interviewed him after it was over. And they asked him, they said, you know, how come you had to interrupt the process as often as you did? He said, I didn't need to interrupt the process. He said it with a twinkle in his eye. He said, I didn't have to do that. He said, knowledge is the reason that I'm able to get free, nothing else. And they said, well, then why did you keep doing that? Why did you keep standing up? And he said, well, he said, I knew how to get free. But he said, unless I stood up and got the applause of the crowd, I wouldn't have the enthusiasm that I needed to finish the job. And, you know, that's the way it is in the Christian life. If we're going to pursue God the way he wants us to do it, we're going to have to have enthusiasm in our life to do that. And so Peter says to supply, enthusiastically supply in our faith, moral excellence. This is a word that means to give shape to your faith, to be the ideal man, as it were, just like Jesus was. It means to be able to show people that faith that's on the inside. And then he says to supply in your moral excellence or your virtue, he says, supply knowledge. And this is not the idea of knowledge that we've already looked at, but it's the idea of knowing what is right. And think about it with me this way. If you had a lot of faith in God and you were determined to live out the Christian life the way God wanted you to do it, but you didn't know the right thing to do, it wouldn't do you much good, would it? So you've got to know the right thing to do. How do you do that? Through the Word of God, through meditation on it, through prayer, through letting God direct you, through seeking Him, 
knowing the right thing. And then he says this, you must add to that or supply in that self-control. I think this is maybe one of the most difficult areas that we have as Christians today. Amen. We do that for a little while, don't we? But this means the ability to harness who you are on the inside to make yourself do what God wants you to do. We know that can only come about by the Spirit of God. But when you harness what's on the inside, then you're able to carry out what God wants you to do. It is hard to do that in our day and age that is so captivated by the drive for pleasure and materialism. But that's what God has called us to do. And then he says to add to our self-control, perseverance. You have been okay if he just said go on a crash diet. I could do that. But to go on a crash diet and stay on it, I mean, that's not quite fair. But that's what this idea of perseverance is. It means to remain under something, to not try to get free of it, to not try to get delivered from living for the Lord and just living good for a while. But it means to be willing to stay under that, to let God teach you what he wants to teach you. In his book uh, by Eugene Peterson called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, he says it like this about the idea of perseverance. He says there is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. And that's what we are called to do, to not just go for the marketing of religious experience, but to sign up for that long apprenticeship in what earlier Christians called holiness. It means to endure as we serve the Lord. And then he says the attitude, godliness, which means a reverence toward God and man, we tend to get very bitter when we're serving the Lord. We get mad because nobody else is doing it. We get mad at God because life is so hard. And this is saying to have an attitude of reverence toward God and toward man, but yet do it with an attitude of brotherly kindness, with feeling in your heart. And then he finally says the capstone of the whole thing, to let it be done supplying love. And I think he added the word love here instead of just brotherly kindness. Because brotherly kindness means loving when you feel like it. But this word for love means loving when you make the choice. It means to love because you want to love, because you've made up your mind that you're going to love. And doing the best with a person regardless of what they want. Doing for them what they need. So just to kind of summarize it, what are the building blocks for usefulness? It means having a faith that works its way out in your life called moral excellence or virtue. It means to have the knowledge of what God really wants you to do, having the self-control of the insides as you can make yourself do it, having the endurance to keep doing it, and then do it with the right attitude, an attitude of respect toward God and man, an attitude of feeling toward God and man, and an attitude of love toward God and man. And then he adds one little thing. We must not only have these characteristics in our life if we're going to be useful, but we must be growing in these characteristics in our life if we're going to be useful. So often, we get right to the edge of our comfort zone, and that's where we stop. And you know what God says? That when we grow to the edge of that comfort zone and then we stop, we not only quit growing, we start going backward. I'm sorry to tell you that. I wish it was easier than that. But God challenges us to continually grow, grow forward, not just to go forward. He says in verse 8, If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the Christian life. And so we must enthusiastically pursue these building blocks if we're going and continue to grow in them, if we're going to be useful. And finally, and I'll just list them because we're out of time, he shares with us not only the basis and the building blocks for usefulness, 
But he shares with us also the benefits of that usefulness. Basically two. One is this, is that we have stability and security in our life. He says, as long as, these do, as you do these things, in verse 10, you will never stumble. And it's so true that when we serve the Lord, as he's called us to do, we have security in our life, that God is really working in our life. But how many Christians do you know that have no security in their salvation because there's no change in their life? Unless God's changed your life, you're not going to have that security. And then he says that we will also have the benefit of salvation in an ultimate sense. It says that when we do these things, in verse 11, that the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you and in you. And this is such a fantastic thought to think that when we get to the end of our life, if we have been building these qualities into our life, that we can look forward to that time when we will receive an abundant entrance. We will receive a joyous celebration. The Father saying to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter in all that the Father has prepared for you. We will be able to look forward to that time. One of the great benefits of living for the Lord and of being, having been useful to him. The story is told about a fellow named Spencer Penrose who around the turn of the century left Harvard to go out to seek his fortune in gold out in Colorado Springs. Spencer Penrose was the brother of a famous politician in Philadelphia whose name was Boys Penrose. And Spencer became the black sheep of the family because instead of pursuing some kind of political career or something that had a little bit more esteem to it around the turn of the century, he left Harvard to go out west to do mining in the hills there of Colorado. Not long after Spencer Penrose was out there, he wired his brother back in Philadelphia and said, send $150, I need it for a mining deal. Well, you know the kind of reaction that that probably got from his brother. His brother immediately wired him back and he said, here's 100, he asked for $1,500 and his brother wired back and said, here's $150. He says, you get the first ticket, you come home, forget about the mining deal. Well, he didn't forget about the mining deal. He took the $150. A few years later, Spencer Penrose returned home. He sat there across the desk from his brother in his plush office, and he plopped down on his desk $75,000 in gold coin. And his brother looked startled, as you know, you might imagine. His brother looked startled. He says, what are you doing here? He said, in the first place, he said, I told you not even to go into the mining deal. But in the second place, I only sent you $150. I didn't even give you an investment in this thing. He says, well, that, my brother, is the reason that I'm only putting $75,000 down here. He says, if you had sent me the $1,500 instead of the $150 that I asked for, I'd be giving you three quarters of a million dollars. A small investment meant a small return. In our Christian lives, the same is true. A small investment means a small return. I know it's late. I know that, you know, we're ready to go. But I want you to think about that. What kind of investment are you making in your Christian life? Are you on a subsistence level of Christianity? Are you just getting by? Are you enthusiastically, with generous supply, pursuing the Christian life? Are you getting to know the Lord personally? Are you actualizing His promises in your life? by trying to build these character traits in your life that he's called you to? Are you trying to be useful in your Christian life? That's what God calls us to do. 
He calls us to be useful in our Christian lives by applying his promises. There may be some of you today here who have never even taken the first step of coming to know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If that's what you need to do today, here in just a few moments when we sing, that's what I want you to do. I want you to get up from where you are, and I want you to come down front and express your desire to come to know the Lord personally or to express the fact you've already done that this week. But if you're here today and you realize that you're not pursuing the Christian life as God's called you to do that, you may need to come down here, but right where you are, then what you need to do is make a recommitment of your life to God and ask God for another opportunity to begin to live life and for Him the way He wants you to do to become useful in His service. Let's pray together. Father, we do come to you this morning thanking you for the tremendous resources that you've given to us. Lord, we know that you've given us many great and magnificent promises, precious promises, Lord, to enable us to live the Christian life in such a way as would be pleasing to you, in such a way that would make us useful in your kingdom. Lord, I pray for that one here that does not know you in a personal way. Lord, convict their heart this morning of the great joy that they are missing by not knowing you. Lord, lead them to your throne of grace this morning. Lord, I pray for so many others who are here this morning who we realize this morning, Lord, that we're not living life on the higher plane that you've called us to, but we're living life just like we were just part of the world instead of like we are part of your family. Lord, I pray this morning that you would convict us, that you would lead us to make a recommitment of our hearts and our lives to you, to become useful in your kingdom, to enthusiastically pursue those things that you called us to, that we might glorify your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.